A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about the Vorke Hasidic dynasty has been dedicated to the memory of Dora Rosen Wiener by her family. And Vorka, Vorka is a, it's simply a small town, a suburb of Warsaw. Vorka was a very prominent um, Hasidic dynasty with great tzaddikim at its helm, great leaders in the 19th and 20th centuries, and it's less well known today. Again, one of those uh, um, one's communities of central Poland that got completely decimated, and um, and it is still with us through Amshinov and primarily Amshinov, also Strick of other smaller ones as well. Alexander comes from them too and others. And I feel like it has an important place in in Jewish history, in Polish Jewish history of the 19th century, early 20th. And therefore I want to give a little bit of an overview of Vorka and talk about the offshoots and branches of it and See Vorka in the context of Pshischa, where it comes from, and what made it unique, and the different personalities, who were its leaders, especially the founder of the dynasty, Reb Yitzchak Kalish Vorka, and its legacy today. I want to open up with a story from one of my trips several years ago. It was a family trip. Uh, grandparents were taking their uh, children and, and, and grandchildren on a family roots trip, and the family came uh, uh, from in prominent Amshinov family. And uh, so it was very much revolving around Vorka and Amshinov and, and Warsaw, that whole area. Um, and, uh, and, um, and, uh, and one of his grandchildren asked him, and he was, the grandfather was an incredibly wise man. I, I, I gained a lot from him on that trip, actually, which is always exciting um, to, to be able to you know, meet an older person and, and spend a week with them and, and gain from their wisdom and experience and knowledge and family background and all that. So I listened to one of his grandchildren asking him a question, and he said, um, you know, Pshischa has this reputation as having given birth to Kotsk. Pshischa's, you know, most Polish Hasidic uh, dynasties came from Pshischa at some point or another. And I, when I say Polish, I mean Central Poland or Congress Poland, um, greater Poland, there's so many different terms for it, but it means not not Galicia and definitely not Ukraine or Hungary or 
or rice and white Russia, Belarus, that area as well. We're talking about the central pole in the heart of of um, of uh, Chassidus in the 19th, 20th century, and and uh, and um, Galicia was too. That's the truth. But but um, talking about central Poland. Either way, so Pshischa was the dominant one. That you know many of the famous uh, and not so famous uh, dynasties came from it, and and many associate Kotsk and later Ger with Pshischa. And and his his grandson's question to his grandfather was, how could it be that Vorka, which was which was just as large and maybe even larger, uh, together with its offshoots, Alexander and and and, and Amshinov and others, uh, also came from Pshischa, and yet we associate Kutsk with its sharpness and its extremity and its and its um, intensity is probably the best word. Um, that we associate with Pshischa, whereas Vorka, which is all about warmth and love and Avas Yisrael and love of the Jewish people, that comes from Pshischa as well. Um, how could it be that both of them came from the same base Medrash, came from the same origin in Pshischa? And they're so different. And the grandfather's answer, which is, uh, which is an answer that's applicable to many things in, in life and in Jewish history, and he says, the basic approach of both of them and their Avaida and their Chasidas comes from Shischa. But ultimately, what, what, what defines the dynasty and the teachings and the experience is one's own personality and individual approach, the individual Avaida, which becomes the dominant force and feature in one's teachings and legacy and what they leave over to their own descendants and students. And Rabbi Yitzchak Avorka, Rabbi Yitzchak Avorka was of a very different temperament than Rabbi Nachum Mendel Morgenstern of Kutsk. There were two of them were very close friends from their Pshischa days, but they had different, very different temperaments. They had very different uh, styles and personalities and moods, and therefore they took their their Pshischa background into two very different directions, and that came to define Polish Hasidus. There was the Vorka approach. Um, which was, you know, less elitist, more populist, uh, more about love and warmth and and strong leadership and responsibility, which we'll get to. Whereas Kutsk was this extremely intensity and very, very, you know, extreme in a way. And we spoke about Kutsk in other times. So here it comes from Vork, and I thought that was a very wise answer. So that's a, a good way to open it, to, to open up the story of Vork. And, and of course, um, it's even if, this episode has been long in coming. It doesn't matter if we're late when it comes to this episode, because Vork and Amshinov, we can be late. And if you didn't get this joke, then you might as well turn off your thing, listen to a different podcast, because this episode is not for you. So, the place of Vork in the history of, of, the, of the movement, um, especially of its founder, Rabbi Tzchikalish of Vork, who holds... Such a prominent place in the history of Chassidus in the 19th century, as well as in general Polish Jewish history of the 19th century, um, because he became becomes a leader of Polish Jewry, not only of Vorka, not only of Chassidus, and not only of his Hasidic community, but he he emerges as this great leader of Polish Jews in the 19th century, first half of the 19th century. He passes away in 1848. So I'm going to devote a lot of time to him because he kind of almost dominates the narrative and he overshadows everything else there is about Vorka. So 
I'll attempt to navigate around that because I do want to focus on him, but I want to also give a richer uh, background to Vorka itself and also note some of the other prominent personalities among his own descendants and students. Um, so if we were going into the world of Polish Hasidus in the 19th century, we have the Hasidic dynasties of central Poland in the 19th century, first half and the second half of the 19th century, Primarily, almost all of them basically come from the Rebbe of Meilach, the Naim Meilach, and primarily through his student, the Chayzeh of Lublin, um, and also the Kajnitzer Magid, um, but, um, but that's where Polish Hasidus comes from, Galicia Hasidus comes from, and even beyond. Um, you also have, you have all, all into Hungary, this Machmaish is a student of the Chayzeh also, that's for another time. So if we would just summarize, just to see where Vorka fits into this great picture, we're looking at central Poland, Congress Poland of the 19th century. The first thing you have is the non-Pshischa uh, dynasties, which are there, right? We said most of them come from Pshischa, but then we also have to note the ones that do not come from Pshischa. So the non-Pshischa dynasties of Congress Poland in the 19th century, you have Koznitz, origins in the Kuznetzer Magid himself, and later on his descendants also Maglanitsa and Grajisk, Piyatsetsna, you know, kind of comes from that also. You have Kuzmir, which Majitz is the most famous uh, descendant from Kuzmir. Uh, in recent years, Yablona became more famous also, so that was another branch of Kuzmir. You have Zvalin, other, other branches of Kuzmir. You have, of course, another dynasty is Lelav, uh, Radoshitz, very prominent one, Radomsk, I spoke about quite some time ago, and a few others. These lists are far from comprehensive, obviously, so, you know, uh, 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 of course there's going to be emails, hey, you didn't mention this, you didn't mention that. All right, don't worry about it, I'm just giving an idea, a basic overview. Then you have the Pshischa dynasties of Central, Central Poland, Pshischa itself, which eventually one of its descendants of Pshischa is also Biala, and, and a few others. And then there's the two primary branches of an offshoots of Pshischa. The generally more famous one, like I said before, is Kotsk. And there you have Reb Chanach and Levin of Alexander, I mentioned once, Reb Chil Meir Gustinin, Wolf Landa, Strikov. Um, and then Ger comes from Kotsk. And there's the split off from Kotsk of Ishbitz, which becomes Radzin later on. And uh, I spoke about that once also. And it also includes. The descendants of Kat, Sachachov, Pilov, Lukov, Sokolov, and a few others. Okay, so that's that's uh, that's one main branch of Pshischa with all their offshoots as well. Now, in 1827, when Reb Bunim of Pshischa passed away, it seems that uh, um, that it was only a minority of his followers who went to Tomashov to to Reb Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, who eventually would be called the Kotzker. Um, it seems that a majority of the, again, it's hard to know the numbers, but let's say a significant number went with the Kutzker and another significant number, I don't want to say majority, minority, I don't get yelled at, so, but there was a significant number that stayed in Pshischa. Rabbi Tzlikavorka, Rabbi Yaakov Arya of Radzimin, Rabbi Guterman of Radzimin, Rabbi Shraga Feivel Danziger of Gritza, were three leading students of Rabbi Simcha Bonem of Pshischa, and they go to his son, uh, Reb Simcha Bonim's son, in Pshischa. They followed him, Reb Avram Moshe Banhard, 
uh, the son of, um, he was 27 years old, he's in Pshisk, he's buried next to his father. When we're in Pshisk on trips, we, we, we go to, we see Rabbi Ram Meisha as well. Uh, and, and they stay there. Now, two years later, unfortunately, this Rabbi Ram Meisha passes away at a young age, 1829. And now Rabbi Yitzchak Kalish, later on of Vorka, emerges as the leader of this faction of Pshisk. It's interesting that Rabbi Yitzchak of Vorka begins his tenure as the leader of this faction at around the same time that the Kutsker moved from Tomashov to Kutsk, so which is where you know he reached his glory in Kutsk. So these two were very close friends, and uh, they continued to be very close friends throughout their lives. And there's quite a few stories between the two. Some of them are very exciting. Um, they had great respect for one another and love for, for the two of them. Really beautiful uh, friendship that the Kutsker and Rebizagavorka had. And the two of them really emerge as leaders as at almost the same time. Uh, the Vorka faction, either uh, uh, from students and associates or descendants, all of Rabbi Yitzchak of Vorka, includes many dynasties of central Poland, some of which were quite large before the war, but were either almost entirely or even entirely decimated in the Holocaust. And that, of course, includes Vorka itself, but like I said, also Amshinov, Alexander, Strykov, Radzimin, not Radzin, Radzin we said is from Izhbitz, before that uh, Kutsk. This is Radzimin. It's the, these are all just simply towns in Poland, usually in the Warsaw or Ludz area. Um, Nederzin, Skernovich, and a bunch of other smaller ones. There's also several branches, each of Vorka and Amshin of themselves. So you're talking about the each branch off. Many of these are, are not well known today. And this, many of them are not known at all. And yet they dominated the Polish-Jewish landscape for a full century. From the second half of the 19th century, when Rybitsa Gavurka passed away in 1848, until the Holocaust. And it's important to note that these were not Ukrainian, Hungarian, or Romanian dynasties and communities. They were in central Poland. So they're, they're in the middle of it all. Right? They play an outsized role in Jewish life, in commerce, in politics, in rabbinical leadership in many towns. They're very prominent. Uh, just as one uh, small example, Skarnovich, which, you know, anytime I've mentioned it to groups or people, they, they like raise their eyebrows. Very few people have even heard of it. Uh, completely unknown today. But uh, a Skarnovich chassid by the name of Rebitzcha Gerstenkorn was the founder of Bnei Brak. He led a group of Skarnovich and other Polish Hasidim from the Warsaw area to Palestine in the 1920s, and they were the ones who built Bnei Brak. So it was Polish Hasidim, uh, Skarnovich, and others from Vurka who built Bnei Brak. So uh, they have left a nice imprint there. Um, um, and, and there's also something to note about many of these, many of these Vurka descendant Rebbes, who, not just descendants, but also from students and, 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 and associates and, and everything from Rebitzel Gavorka. So many of them were rabbis of their towns. Um, they, 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 they were rabbis of the towns, and later on they would emerge as a Hasidic rabbi as well because Hasidim were attracted to them. They gained this following very often by a grassroots fashion. They didn't establish themselves as a rabbi. They were a Talmud Chacham, a rabbi, a Paisik, of a town in Poland, a small town in the Warsaw area, many of them, and uh, and uh, and eventually they they, they enough Hasidim came to them to seek out 
guidance and counsel and advice and teachings that they emerged as a Rebbe as well. So that's a very interesting thing to note. And uh, the ne- next idea to note is is that there's endless no, there's an endless number of towns in Poland. Jews lived in thousands of market towns, thousands. They lived in big urban environments also um, as the 19th century wore on, and especially after World War One. But they also lived in thousands of towns, and therefore, you you in, when you opened a new branch of the dynasty, you simply were in another town, and eventually the name of that town became. Uh, became attached to your legacy. So there's a, now we're very limited. Now we're kind of like, now, now when there's splits, you have to come up with the, you know, street numbers and stuff like that to distinguish between two branches of the Hasidic groupings. But uh, because, because you know, pretty much everyone lives in either Yushalayim, B'nai Brak, uh, Brooklyn, or, you know, a couple of other places. Um, uh, the Hasidic Rebbe's I'm talking about. I don't know if they made it to Lakewood yet, or Tom's River, whatever it is. But um, but uh, in, then in Poland, you know, you went to just another town and and you established yourself there, and eventually your dynasty came to be called by the next town. So even if you had five sons or sons-in-law who became rebbes over the next couple of decades after one rebbe's passing, so all five of them were in different towns, different areas, no competition. And they each came to have different names of, uh, of whatever town they were in. Of course, they could have competition too, and there was no shortage of those also. But that's a different story. Um, either way, um, so when we get to the founder himself, Rabbi Tzachavorka, um, and he's really, what his what he's comes to be most known for is that he's the beginning of Jewish politics in Poland, which is an incredible feat and accomplishment. When he passed away, there was even a question, should they bury him in Warsaw, because he spent so much time in Warsaw interceding with government officials and lobbying and organizing things, and and I'm going to talk about exactly what he did, Um, so maybe they should bury him in Warsaw, because his legacy is his leadership in the Jewish people, and how he organized their, you know, their relationship with the government and um, and his shtadlanis, his 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 intercession and lobbying and politics that he organized on behalf of the Jewish community of Poland. So that is represented by Warsaw. Or should he be buried in Vorka, which is represented by the fact that he was a Hasidic rabbi, a big tzaddik who had a following of Hasidim, where he would teach them. So what's the dominant? Uh, element or facet of Rabbi Tzachavorka's personality. Where should he be buried? And his, I think it was, I think it was his friend Rabbi Cheskel Taub of Kuzmir. I think perhaps it was someone else. I have to check if the dates match up. If Rabbi Cheskel Kuzmir was still alive, I, I should have checked that up beforehand. But if not, it was one another one of his acquaintances that was. They they asked his asked the advice where where Rabbi should be buried. And uh, and and the, and the advice given was that he should be buried in Vorka, because at the end of the day, what he sh- should be remembered for is that he was a great rebbe and a great tzaddik. And he said, don't worry, for the other part of his legacy, what he did on behalf of the Jewish people in the political leadership sense, his son will eventually be buried in Warsaw. He made that prediction, if, if it was Rebbe Cheskel Kuzmir or someone else. And in fact, uh, the his son, Rebbe Menachem Mendel Kalish, the next Vorka Rebbe, um, who is known as the Silent Tzaddik, uh, the Silent Rebbe, who we'll get to hopefully, he was actually buried in Warsaw. So, but either way, what brings it out is that there's it's representative of these two facets, these two sides to him. 
So his his philosophy, Yitzchak of Vorka's philosophy was about love, avas Yisrael, love of everyone, responsibility for everyone, love of the world, love of the Jewish people. Seemingly, at least in theory, a very different type of pshischa approach than Kutsk, for instance, like I mentioned. But as we'll see, there were some other Vorka Rebbes who were much more serious, much more intense, much more pessimistic, much more, we would say, Kutsk style. Um, and some of these descendants of Rabbi Tzikavurka were actually even followers of the Kutzker himself. But the primary thing that Rabbi Tzikavurka of Tzikavurka is remembered for is his shtadlanus, is his Jewish politics, interceding on behalf of the Jewish people of Poland, and sometimes even beyond Poland, even in the Pale of Settlement. Um, and this was unique in several respects. Why was it unique that he becomes this kind of like self-made political leader, of the Jewish people in Poland, because first of all, it was his own initiative. He did this on his own. No one appointed him to that position. He sought it out. He, he wanted to do for his people, for on behalf of his people. The second of all, it was the first time in the history of the Hasidic movement that this was happening, that a Hasidic leader was making himself into a political leader, into someone who lobbies the government on behalf of the Jewish community. Although, at around the same time as this, so it's hard to know who is first. Almost the same time that Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, Tzemach Tzedek, the third uh, leader of Chabad, he commenced on a similar approach in the Pale, in the Pale of Settlement, where, uh, where he also emerged as this leader as, uh, in, in a political sense, as far as the Russian Tsarist government in, 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 as well. In other words, the first, this is the first foray of the Hasidic movement into politics at the national level, and that a Hasidic leader is the one who's assuming the role, it's quite unique. He also, another fascinating aspect of this political leadership, is that he represented the Jews of Poland as a whole. Not his specific court of Wurka, not even the Hasidic community of Poland, rather Polish Jewry, religious Hasidic, non-Hasidic, secular, whatever it was, whoever was Polish Jews at the time as a collective, and this understandably greatly raised the prestige of the Hasidic movement in general in the eyes of both the masses of Polish Jewry and the leaders of Polish Jewry, the rabbinical establishment leaders of Polish Jewry, who were non-Hasidic. It also made it more mainstream. It's not a fringe community anymore. Look, a great Hasidic leader is actually representing the entire Polish Jewry in the halls of power in Warsaw. Um, the fact that the Polish and Russian, you know, the status, the political status of Poland, of, of, of Congress Poland at the time is quite interesting also because, excuse me, it's, uh, it's officially under Tsarist Russia. This is in the post-Napoleonic era. Um, but the Russian Tsar's Grand Congress Poland, a certain Polish autonomy to the to the uh, Polish aristocracy, and over the 19th century they take away that autonomy, especially after the um, the Polish uh, nobility revolts against the Tsars in 1831, um, and then later in in 1863. Um, so Polish autonomy is taken away by the Russians, and they establish their sovereignty in Congress Poland as well. So it's in this somewhat Polish autonomy, but it's somewhat under the Tsars in Russia as well. So the, 
you know, exactly who's in charge in Warsaw is not so clear. But in any event, the Polish or and or Russian authorities accepted Rabbi Yitzchak of Warsaw representing the Jewish people in Poland as a whole. They saw him as an official representative. Um, he collected signatures from all the regional rabbis all over Congress Poland to give him power of attorney to represent them and the Jewish community as a whole, vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis the, the, uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, the, uh, the Warsaw government, and they, they, they granted it. All these rabbis grant him power of attorney, and it's documented, it's signed, they have letters, and he comes into the Polish government, he comes into the palaces and to the government things, and they accept it. They, they recognize him as the official representative of the Jewish people in Poland, which is fascinating. Um, and um, the fact that it actually worked, I mean, that he was able to pull off this feat. And then, the last thing why it makes it so unique is, is his professionalism. It was organized. He had teams of assistants, legal assistants, um, administrative uh, uh, team, and drafting letters, and petitions, and lobbyists, and meetings, and organization. It was very, very impressive for the early 19th century by a Hasidic leader to have such a profound understanding of politics and to use that to the best represent the needs of the entire Polish-Jewish community. And I'll give a few examples of things he accomplished. There was the kashras of meat issues. There was a bunch of challenges. There was a law that changed that allowed the leasing of the kosher meat tax to Christian butchers. So this would you know, almost almost make it impossible to supervise the kashras. He lobbied the Ministry of Finance for kosher meat supervision and to make it a crime to have false advertising of kosher meat when it was not in fact kosher or supervised. He made it, he was able to get amendments to the tax code on kosher meat and supervising rights. And he sent the ministry letters in perfect Polish. All this exists in Polish archives till today. I mean, these are real documents. We know this all from first hand. This is not some sort of um, mythology created by um, by members of the Jewish community who are proud of what he did. This is actual real stuff. He met with government officials. He got, like I said, the power of attorney from across the board of Polish Jewry. Nothing specifically Hasidic about this. This is for the entire Polish-Jewish community. The Polish government recognizes him as the official representative in its entirety. Um, and this is the first time that the Polish government recognized some sort of um, central Jewish representative since the abolishment of the Vad Ha'arba Ha'ratzos, the Council of the Four Lands Autonomous Jewish Governing Council, which was abolished in 1764. And here we're uh, half you know, more 60, 70 years later, 1830s. Um, and, uh, and here it is, Rebitzik Vork was able to accomplish uh, this feat. He was granted audiences with the Viceroy of Poland and was able to circumvent the usual bureaucratic procedures. Over the next few years, he successfully appealed several other measures regarding the sale and regulation of kosher meat in Poland. He was very involved in the 1840s, the mid-1840s, of the Gzeras Hamalbushim, it was called, the clothing decree, which was not about Hasidic dress. It was about Jewish dress. That's another thing that's very misunderstood um, of that time. Um, he and the Chidushi Arim, his close friend, um, Rabbi Meyer, then Rottenberg, later Alter, uh, the Chidushi Arim, 
Um, so he, the two of them worked together. The Kutzker actually disagreed with the two of them. He felt that the dress is not a major issue. Jews always change their dress. What's the big deal? We could change it again. But the Ritzik of Orke and the Chedushirim and others took it very seriously. And they solicited the Rizhiner, Rabbi Yisrael Friedman of Rizhin. They solicited his assistance as well. They traveled all the way to Volin in Ukraine in the Pale to uh, get him to uh, intercede with Russian officials as well. They even tried to get Moses Montefiore to support the cause on his visit to Russia in 1845, 1846. Um, and he he saw himself as representing all the Jews because it was part of his love everyone philosophy. If you love all the Jewish people, then you have to take responsibility for them. And you have to take a leadership role. And you have to be an activist. And you have to take initiative to, to, to help the Jewish people. He fought vigorously with government officials uh, uh, that, uh, that there was this rabbinical school that was opened in Warsaw, shouldn't undermine, which was you know, more associated with the enlightened members of the community. He didn't, he didn't want that rabbinical school to undermine the established traditional rabbinical norms. He lobbied against that school. His activities had a decisive impact on both the Hasidic movement and Poland as a whole, and on Polish Jewry in its entirety as well. In fact, it would be difficult to find anything he did which was specifically on behalf of Vorka Hasidim exclusively. All of his leadership was on a national scale. He fought for a right to put up an Eruv, Erevin for Shabbos, which was hard to get, uh, you know, in many cities it was hard to do. He fought for that right. He was able to get a law repealed which required Jews to get a civil divorce before they got a religious divorce. He was involved in, in the, the, there was the Rav Mitam, the, the crown rabbis at the time, the stuff as well, he was involved in that. He was involved in the releasing Jewish prisoners, Pidyan Shvuyim. He was involved in the Jewish military service, also together with Moses Montefiore, who was visiting Russia in 1846, is at the time of the Cantonist decrees of Tsar Nicholas I. Um, though Congress Poland wasn't really part of the pale of settlement at this point, but still the Jewish military service was an issue. He had administrative legal aides, filing petitions, dealing with the bureaucracy, really professionally run, understanding the complexities of the law and the different relative levels of government officials in Warsaw. It was a very professional operation, and Rebitzak of Worka held this position pretty much unchallenged through all of his time in this position. It was unchallenged by any other Hasidim, it was also unchallenged by other Jews. And it was also unchallenged by the government. They, they completely accepted him. His legacy in this, regard, in this regard was taken up by his close friend, the Chidush Erem, after Abitzak of Vurka's passing in 1848, and also by his own descendants in Vurka and Amshinov. And it kind of became a legacy of Ger through the Chidush Erem in general of, of, of being leaders in Jewish politics in Warsaw and in Poland. Um, Rabbi Yitzhak of Urka was originally, initially brought to the Hasidic movement by Rabbi Davidl Biedermann of Lelov, the founder of the Lelov Hasidic dynasty. As were many others of that generation in Poland, Rabbi Davidl of Lelov was a great recruiter. Um, so uh, Rabbi Yitzhak was a student of Rabbi Davidl Lelov. He was also a student of the Chayzer of Lublin and of course the Yedek of Pshischa and Rabbi Simcha Bonim. They all passed away within a few years of each other. So Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Meisha of Lelov, Rabbi David of Lelov's son, went all the way to Ukraine, to Ramatul of, uh, uh, of Chernobyl, uh, uh, the Chernobyl or Magid, 
um, to accept him as their new teacher, but he refused to take them as students because he insisted that they can be leaders in their own right back in Poland. So they returned to Pshischa and they became followers of Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa, and then his son of Rav Maisha, like I said, and then finally in 1829 he emerges as the main leader of that faction. He served as rabbis of some towns for a time. He was also employed for a time by Temeril Bergson, the famous wealthy uh, woman from Warsaw who supported many of the Polish uh, tzaddikim, rabbis and chassidim at the time. Um, the Rebitzka Vorka was extremely close with the Katzker. He even visited him following his passing. In other words, after Rebitzka Vorka was already, had already passed away and the Katzker was still alive, Rebitzka Vorka would still visit him. Uh, I don't even know what that means. But at one of the weddings of the Kutzker's, one of the Kutzker's children, he didn't come out to the chuppah. And he said, when he finally came out, he said, I was busy, I had a visitor. Bitsuka Vorka was here visiting. So uh, whatever that means, you know, take it or leave it. The Kutzker once went to Pshischa on Rebsimcha Bunim's yard site, and he said, uh, he, he, he met Rabbi Vorka there, so he said, I'm not a grave guy, I don't go visit graves, in other words, the Kutzker would not come on one of my trips, but I came to see you, he came to see, I knew you would be here on the yard site, so I came to see you. Um, and uh, so he, so the, the two were very close. Rabbi Vorka had an anger jacket, he would only get angry if he was wearing that jacket, so if he felt the need to get angry, he would wait until he put on that jacket. Um, this way, he knew he was really getting angry for the right reason, and it, you know, it took him a few minutes to calm himself down. Well, nothing was spontaneous; it was all controlled. Once he asked his gabai to bring it because he needed to express anger about someone or something. When they brought it to him, he asked his gabai to wear it instead and get angry for him because he said it's too difficult for him to get angry. He just does; he can't do it. He can't bring himself uh, to. Uh, to get angry. Um, he also was involved in very uh, lots of chesed projects. He um, fundraising for the poor. He split his time, like I said, between Vorka and Warsaw um, because he was always there, you know, within his in his in his political leadership position. And in a letter that he wrote, he wrote he praised the Warsaw Jewish community. Um, he said that they make a weekly collection of money and food every Friday afternoon for the poor and especially for widows and orphans. And he's encouraging other Jewish communities around central Poland to adopt a similar custom. Uh, very, very, very interesting. Um, and now, when he passes away in 1848, he's, he's succeeded by his dear friend, Shagafaiv of Gritze, who passed away during a cholera epidemic a few months later. Many years later, uh, descendants of Revival Gritza would form the Alexander, Alexander dynasty, which we discussed recently in an episode devoted to Alexander. Revital Gavurka was ultimately succeeded by his two sons. His older one, Rabbi Yaakov David Kalish, was a rabbi in Amshinov, so he established the Amshinov dynasty. Um, and uh, his younger son, um, once said, there's also another friend of his who, who continued uh, Varka, excuse me, before I, before I get on. Rabbi Yaakov Ari Guterman of Radzimin, he, he kind of had another branch of Varka, but it was, it was Rabbi Yitzchak's younger son was the one who continued in Varka, his second son, Rabbi Nachem Mendel Kalish. And he's a fascinating figure known as the silent tzaddik. Um, he barely spoke. He spoke without speaking, his Hasidim would say. He danced without moving. Any slight move or any cryptic small saying that he said was studied and interpreted, um, he, he almost never spoke. Uh, he evoked this awe, this seriousness, even a fear. It was much more like Kutsk than Vorka. 
um, whatever cryptic things that he said and people didn't understand had to be interpreted by his close student and eventual successor of Dave Berish Landa Biala, who was the ancestor of the Strikov dynasty. Um, Rev Menachem Mendel, the silent Sadik, was also close with the Kutzker, and some say that's how he Reb Mendel even became a leader of the uh, of the Vorka Hasidim. Um, he was hoping that they'd all go to his brother in Amshanov, or one of the other new branches of Vorka. He didn't want them to come to him. He didn't want anything for himself. He preferred to stay quiet and hidden, so he escaped to Kutsk. He went into the Kutsker, and um, and uh, and they both sat there silently with each other, not exchanging a single word. And when he got up to leave, uh, the Kutsker said, I couldn't get anything out of him, but he extracted everything from me. Uh, the Kutsker allegedly prevailed upon him to accept the leadership of Vorka Hasidim. Um, very serious, he was demanding truth style of the old Pshischa and Kutz, which was kind of very different from his father's uh, warmth. The Vurka Hasidim, during his tenure, were known for their intense unity, almost like a fraternity. They enjoyed each other's company. Uh, the followers of Reb Mendel of Vurka, a saying in Polish Hasidus at the time, went that a Vurka Hasid, without a bottle of mashke, a bottle of uh, of alcohol, is not a Vurka Hasid. So they even with the intensity, I guess they need to let off uh, steam with the intensity. Um, this uh, Remendel passed away in 1868. He was succeeded by his close student, Reb Daiv Berish Landov Bial. Eventually, that's the Strikov dynasty. Later, the Alexander dynasty emerged from the Danzinger family as well, like I mentioned. One son-in-law established the Naderz, Naderzin dynasty, another branch of work. Another child was Skernovich. Some Hasidim went with his young 17-year-old son, uh, Reb Simcha Bunim. Uh, who established a Vorka branch in Otvatsk, outside of Warsaw. Reb Simcha College of Vorka Otvatsk was another fascinating figure. Very strange, very extreme, excuse me. He had some odd stringencies in Halacha. He had separate rooms for meat and dairy, separate clothing for meat and dairy. He would wait 24 hours between meat and dairy. He had separate sections of the house some sections of his house were used for Pesach, other sections for Chametz. I guess he's the first person to have a Pesach kitchen. Um, he stayed very often separate from his family. He wouldn't eat outside of his home. If he had to ever travel, he'd bring along his own bread and raisin wine. Once a Rebbe sent him Shalach Manis wrapped in a newspaper. He sent back the entire Shalach Manis because he was opposed to newspapers. So he felt it was inappropriate. The mezuzahs in his shtibel in Atvatsk were the size of a Megillah. Um, he was against modern fashion. He would not even receive petitioners who were, weren't dressed to his taste. Um, and I like the custom of Vorka and Amshinov, really comes from Shischa. He would daven very late in the day. He attempted to move to the Holy Land twice. The first time in 1887, he overstayed his visa and was arrested by the Ottoman authorities and imprisoned and then deported back to Poland. He went again in, in 1905 because he was very concerned about the 1905 Russian Revolution and he moved to Tveria, and he stayed there for two years until his passing in 1907. He's buried in Tveria. The interesting about the interesting thing about Reb Simcha Bonim Kalish of Vurka um, was his granddaughter. And of course, uh, he succeeded by his son, Reb, the next Reb Mendel Kalish of Vurka, also in Atvatsk. And he had this daughter, um, who was a granddaughter of Reb Simcha Bonim, uh, named Ita Kalish. It was a, a very interesting woman. She left religious observance entirely. Um, she was very educated, a very active, a big writer, an activist, Zionist, um, Yiddishist. She had different phases throughout her life. 
She moved to Palestine in 1930, and she had a very interesting and accomplished life. She lived, she lived well into her 90s. Uh, but what's most interesting is her detailed memoir. She wrote this very detailed autobiography, which provides much insight into Polish-Jewish life and Polish Hasidic life, and especially of the Vorka family during the early 1900s. So it's a great resource. Uh, between Reb Simcha Bunim's children and the other various branches, there were quite a few Vorka-related branches, mostly in the Warsaw area on the eve of the Holocaust. Most of the Rebbes, their families, and Hasidim were killed during the Holocaust. Very few survived. Some surviving Hasidim joined one of the similar courts which were reestablished after the war, such as Amshinov or Strikov, uh, one of the most, or Alexander. Uh, one of the most important of these was, of course, the legendary Amshinov Rebbe, a Reb Shimon Shalom Kalish, who also resided in Otvatsk. He escaped to Vilna um, at the war's outset, and he eventually made it to Shanghai, where he spent the war years in Shanghai in the community of the refugees, where he exhibited tremendous leadership among the refugee community um, in Shanghai. Um, I think Reb Shimon Shalom Kalish, Amshinov Rebbe, as well as the Amshinov faction of Vorka deserve their own treatment, so maybe we'll do that one day as well. But suffice it to say that he emerged as a charismatic leader in the, in the, during the war years and the uh, immediate post-war years for Vorka survivors. If I had to summarize about the Vorka legacy today, it would be in two areas. Um, first of all, the dynasties of Amshin, of Strik, of Alexander, and some other smaller Polish dynasties which are still around, all are with us, and they all come from Vorka. But beyond that, uh, Vorka and its branches and its offshoots were so dominant in Polish Jewish leadership in general. Uh, pioneers in Stadlonis and Jewish politics and leadership, responsibility for the entire community because of their philosophy of love for all Jews, that that legacy continues in the general, general Jewish community um, as well to this very day. So this is Yudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yudi.yudigeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on any podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.